Welcome to Served Neat, hosted by your girl, Jen Hartman. I'm the CEO of Neat, a boutique PR and marketing agency based out of Louisville, Kentucky. I launched Neat in 2019 with just $3,000 in my bank account. Since then, I've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of emerging brands and Fortune 500 empires. I believe that marketing and PR should be served neat, just like your favorite bourbon. On this podcast, you'll hear about the latest and greatest growth strategies, the ups and the downs of entrepreneurship, and so much more. Pour yourself a glass of your favorite bourbon because it's time to dive in to this week's episode. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Served Neat. In today's episode, you'll get to hear a conversation I had with Mia D'Amato, founder of Boho Basement. Boho Basement creates really unique and fun, upcycled NFL and college game day attire. Boho has completely redefined football fan clothing. In this episode, we talk viral TikToks, how Mia landed her first 100 customers, how she collaborated with a major car company on a campaign this year. She shares a story about selling an $800 pair of sweatpants that she made. And we even touch on burnout. I've actually known Mia for a few years and we've worked together in the past. So this felt like a conversation with a friend. I know that you're going to absolutely love the content of this episode. So let's get into it. So I figured a good starting place would be to just walk through your business journey with Boho. I know you've been out there for a couple of years. So tell us where you started and then where you're currently at. So I would say roughly I'm two years in, which is crazy. Looking back on it, it feels like a long time, but it also feels like I blinked and I'm like, whoa, it's two years. But I just had started out in college, just reselling clothing on the weekends with my friends, which sounds crazy. But so I was reselling vintage and I did a little college pop-up and it went nuts. I sold everything out that day. We had like a two day long pop-up. So I had to go buy more stuff that night with all my girlfriends. That's how I got into selling on Instagram. Shortly after graduation, COVID was like keeping everyone home. I didn't even apply to a single job. So I was like, you know, I'll just take this seriously and go full time in on reselling. But just like everyone else was at the time, it was hard to find high end vintage at the thrift stores because people would just go and clear it out. So I started buying thrashed or anything that had a cool logo on it that maybe had life still in it that I could rework. So that's how I got into reworking, got on TikTok. And six months after that, my Instagram kind of popped off and I've been filling orders on upcycled clothing since then. I love it. And I know that you are very much in the like NFL niche, college football right. niche. Like how did you end up there? So it's actually so funny. I'm, I've always been into sports, but when I was at the thrift store, I'd found an old Steelers crew neck that was just kind of thrash. And every Tuesday, all of the color tags at the thrift store are switched, meaning wasn't on sale last week is now a dollar. So I would just buy anything that was a dollar. So I wasn't a Steelers fan, but I had just bought it because it was on sale. And I upcycled it into a pair of the patchwork joggers. And that was my first TikTok that went viral. And at the time, people going viral, it was kind of like an overnight, you go to bed, you wake up with 10 to 100,000 followers from one video. And that was kind of my experience with getting involved in TikTok. That's wild. I remember I had nothing like what you have, because I feel like a lot of your videos go viral all the time. But on my personal TikTok, 
TikTok, I had a video about like my wedding disaster story from last year. And it oh, went I viral. saw that. It was ridiculous. Like I posted it. And then within a day, there were like 500,000 people who had seen it. It was picked up by one of the biggest outlets in Europe. And it just mm-hmm. like ended up being really insane. And it's so funny, the things that end up going viral, like the things you don't think will end up going viral always seem to go viral. So it is wild what happens when one of your videos just pops yeah. up. Like I will say, because I think a lot of people out there, because we do quite a bit of work with brands and there's this misconception that if you have one video go viral, it blows up your entire business and that's all you mm-hmm. need to experience success. It almost mm-hmm. feels like a lightning strike because going viral doesn't last mm-hmm. forever. There's always a new interesting video that's being reshared. So like going viral is not a strategy. You can't scale a business based on hoping and praying that your videos go viral, but it does help with sales temporarily. And like that can bring so much attention to your business. And it's kind of like top of funnel, right? Because like people will discover you through a viral video. They come to your website, either they purchase or they find you on Instagram and they follow you. And then you start building more of a relationship with them over time. But yeah, no, I actually couldn't agree more. I think a lot of times small business owners and just brands in general, their only goal is to go viral. And although that can drive a lot of traffic to your store and a lot of eyeballs on whatever you typically share, it also is a little bit overwhelming because then you have this pressure to produce more content in that same niche of whatever went viral and it might not be always in line with what your brand is. So I think it's important to know that going viral shouldn't be the goal, but you can post in a way that creates consistent virality every one to three months. Tell me your secret then. I'm dying to know. Yeah, I think the sweet spot for me, just because I have posted so much in the past year and a half is posting quality content over quantity. So having a value to what you're posting over just something that would be viral. And then having your posting schedule and then also kind of seeing your watch time on videos and mimicking that viral video over and over and over again. But kind of the sweet spot for me has been to get a viral video, which is anything 10 times your follow count once every one to three months. So I know that if I'm hitting that, then everything in between that I've been producing is also of value because you're not going to post a viral video every single time. You have to build valuable content in between to build that up to the viral video. But I don't know if there's any direct formula. It's really specific to your audience that you have. But anything I post, I always think of value. Is it shareable? And is it bingeable? And if it doesn't fit all of those, then I don't post it. Mm, I like that. So tell me about your most popular videos. What were you doing? What were you saying? What were you wearing? Give us the gist. As I'm sure you might have seen on my page, like a lot of the get dressed with me or get ready with me. And a lot of times when I have a viral video, it's always the hook at the first second, not even the first three seconds, but the millisecond of the video at the beginning that makes people want to watch at least that first part of the video. But I do a lot of the get ready with me's and then also anything that's just aesthetically pleasing too. And then also a third one would be anything that may be confusing to them. Like you intentionally make it a little bit, wait, what'd she say? Or what was that? So they have to rewatch it again. Can you give us an example of that when you said anything slightly confusing to my audience makes them want to rewatch it. Can you give me an example? I posted this a while ago, but this just jumps to the front of my mind. I had posted something that was like, oh my gosh, Josh Allen hit me up for this custom fit. And then I'd gone on to say later in the video that obviously like that was a joke, but that first initial statement 
people are so excited about it and they want to watch more about what Josh Allen said to me. And then they're like, wait, did you mean that or what? And then they'll watch it three times or just anything controversial at the time. Like I saw Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey out and about and then go into your spiel. But obviously it's kind of like a little bit of a white lie, but it gets people interested in like, oh gosh, wait, what do you know about that? But obviously don't go off on tangents, like just spewing lies, but you can make things funny or interesting. If you can make them watch the first three seconds, they'll likely watch the rest of the video. I love that. That is such a good idea. I can see how like sprinkling those white lies or whatever in here and there would be so interesting. And it would literally, it would build your following, but I can see how it could be overdone too. Like, I think there's a fine line between using that sparingly and then using it too much and having people be like, oh, this girl, like here she goes. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) You don't want to leave a bad taste in people's mouth, but satire sometimes is funny. Also, one of my viral books that I've had success with, I think three or four times so far, is just saying a random name at the start, like, hey, Jen from Louisville. Whoever's name is Jen is going to be so freaked out. And they're like, oh my God, but how does she know that's me? And just with TikTok algorithm is insanely accurate. It's just going to push it to anybody named Jen. So then you'll have millions of gens in your comment like oh my god this totally freaked me out and by the time they've gone to the comment section to type that they've already watched half the video that is so funny I love that I had another founder I'm going to share this here because it's been like a year since this episode has aired she intentionally mispronounced names in the beginning of her videos and the comments would blow up from people correcting her, mm-hmm. which is so funny. Yeah. So it sounds like from what I'm gathering throughout this conversation and other conversations with founders about TikTok videos that have done really well, it's really important to hook people in the first couple of seconds. People yeah. just have really yeah, short attention spans. Right. Yeah. I mean, if not, like you're just going to keep scrolling as fast as you can, but I've had success on TikTok with getting eyeballs on my page, but going viral hasn't been my goal because I don't monetize my views. My goal with TikTok Mm -hmm. is to create enough traction, push them to my website or push them to my Instagram, where then you develop a more intimate relationship with them. Exactly. So I try as best as I can not to be salesy, like a salesman and push product on them, more kind of lifestyle around the products that I do sell. And then Instagram, if they make Make it that far is where I'll push product and drop dates and sales to them. You're not the first person I've heard say that, but I appreciate you validating what I've heard about TikTok in the past. Mm-hmm. And actually just based on like my own habits, I've seen that too, where I'm way more drawn to brands or creators who aren't talking about what they're wearing. If they're just doing like a get ready with me or like they're out and about running errands, but they never mention where they got their dress from. You better believe I'm in the comments so deep. I will be thousands of comments deep trying to figure out where she got her outfit from yeah it's nobody but as soon as somebody goes oh yeah I got my shirt from here I got my dress from here I got my hat from here I'm like yeah I don't care whatever but if a creator doesn't say or a brand doesn't say the details of their outfit or their makeup like oh I am going out of my way to figure out what it is I don't know why that works so well though right I think it's just more of like
like a subconscious thing, at least for me, like, oh, they're trying to sell this to me, scroll, because yeah. then they're they're trying to like make money off your view. But if it's organic and natural, like my best friend just showing me the outfit she's wearing for the day, I want to watch it. I don't know, at least for me, it's more relatable and less cringy. But I think too, taking pressure off of monetizing views on TikTok off the plate, you take the pressure of going viral off the plate as well. So for those brands that do exist only on TikTok, they have to go viral if they want to sell a thousand of this cup. So it's a lot more pressure to make viral content versus just posting videos in line with your brand, your mission, your values, your lifestyle, and maybe you might happen to go viral. That's great. But if not, that's okay too. Yeah, 100%. I like what you touched on before as well, where you're pushing people over to another platform, either Instagram, Mm -hmm. or you're pushing people to your website, and you're smart in doing so. I think a lot of founders out there think, okay, TikTok is the platform I need to sell from TikTok. And like, that's not how it works. TikTok is how people Mm -hmm. are discovering your brand, whether it's them discovering your brand from a content creator on TikTok or discovering the brand through maybe a video of yours that did incredibly well. But the discovery process is not view click buy. That is not how customers are making purchases nowadays. They Mm -hmm. are discovering your TikTok. They're going to your website. Maybe they're getting on like your SMS list. And then maybe in a month from now, they'll buy. Or maybe they're going to your website and then later they get hit with a paid ad and then they buy. The customer journey is so different than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah, 100%. I think too, this is specific to how my brand has developed over the past few years, but it's always worked for me to push to Instagram. But I think as I grow and hire and try to scale in different ways, I think it would be better to push them to your website and have better SEO. Also, you just never know if somebody's going to be able to find your Instagram again versus getting them on your email, your SMS list and pushing them directly to your website. Yeah, 100%. I mean, SMS, email, that is very much mid-funnel. It's where you're building your relationship. And Mm -hmm. ultimately from mid-funnel, you're pushing people to bottom of funnel where they're going to make a buying decision. And with SMS and email, you own that information, right? Mm -hmm. You don't own your Instagram followers. You don't own your TikTok followers. So I always recommend whether you have a product or you have a service, you get people to mid-funnel where you're collecting customer information so you can have ownership over time. And then if your content isn't performing, it's not the end of the world. You can sell to your emails, your SMS list. So I think that's a really great idea and something I would love to see you do more of in the future. Yeah. In terms of business for me, I've been kind of at this like crossroads where I can just keep doing what I'm doing by myself, but I just have recently hired an assistant who's in with me three to four days a week, which has been awesome. So I've just discovered creating SOPs for different things, which has been, oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't done this before writing the same email a hundred times, I could just delegate that to her, which has been a huge win for me personally. And I've been able to claim a lot of my time back to focus more on different operational things. So I'm still kind of figuring that out. And I've only had her for just a short time, but I'm really excited to see where this goes when I get three or four other hands in the mix. So yeah, it's a slow burn, but I think for me, I've always put pressure, okay, go, go, go. But there really is no rush. And the great thing with my brand is it develop as slow or as fast as I want it to. There's no rush to the finish line because there is no finish line as an entrepreneur. You're always creating, you're always thinking of new ideas. Recently, that's been a great discovery 
recovery for me. I'm so proud of you because I know I have been on you in the past like two years to hire help. <laughs> I know. And I'm so glad that after a couple of years, you hired an assistant. I know. <laughs> I think I've just been really nervous failing because if I were to bring more people in my day to day, then there's also that pressure of making sure you have enough orders or you have enough cash flow to support them. So I've just been a little bit nervous on, oh, is this still going to be a thing next year? And I think going through this NFL season, just because most of what I sell is pro sports related, I'm like, okay, yeah, we can all relax and chill because the demand is still there. People still enjoy my content, like my brand and want to purchase products. But that feeling where you just like, don't know if it's going to be a long-term thing or is this just viral video that 100 people wanted sweatpants from or is this an actual sustainable business? Yeah, no, I still get that way. I mean, I'm in my fifth year of business and I still have this like weird feeling of, well, what if I wake up tomorrow and everything I've built is gone? That feeling doesn't just disappear. That feeling grows over time for sure. And even though I have Mm -hmm. proof of the business working in the last few years, I still feel like it could be taken away at any point, any time. And it's so scary. And it is a whole different level of fear when you do have employees because not only do you have to take care of yourself, but now you have to take care of people who they're relying on you. Maybe they have kids, they have families, they have houses, yep. they have mortgages to pay for. And it's just a whole new level of pressure that you never thought you'd deal with. Like I never thought four years ago, I'd be concerned about taking care of people's families. And like now that is the yeah. thing that keeps me up at night as an entrepreneur. It's not taking care of myself. It's taking care of everybody else I employ. Yeah, no. And that's so true. You're much more in the thick of it than I am. I'm just kind of getting a taste of that. But I've said this a hundred times before, but consistency and trusting yourself really does pay out. And I try to, when I can kind of pull myself out of my feelings or my emotional decision-making and responses to things as a business owner, because you won't know unless you kind of jump in with two feet and try it out. So I am really excited to see where this can go, but I'm always going to be nervous. I mean, I talk to other founders and they all say the same thing. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think there is something in kind of having a little bit of an ego and high self-talk to walk yourself through that feeling, which has kind of been helping me recently. Well, good. Yeah. And I also, I mean, we haven't touched on this, but like you are really young. You're 20, are you 22 or 23? I just turned 24. Oh my God. You just turned 24. (laughs) But I mean, like you are a young founder. This is your first really go at a business. Uh, You came out of school working for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I feel like you're having a very different experience than maybe I did where I came out of school and worked for different agencies, worked in corporate, went to business school. And then I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to do this for myself. But I also worked for other founders who are doing what I'm currently doing. So I got to kind of learn from other people and you didn't have that experience. Like everything you're doing, like this is the first time you're doing it. It's the first time you're seeing it, which I can't even imagine running a business in that way. So the fact that you are doing the dang thing and you've been successful is absolutely incredible. Yeah. It is fun though, to wake up every day and get to create my own schedule and drive my own results, which has been the most rewarding thing, but I'm always eager to learn. I always try to have an open mind and be receptive to anybody's advice, especially founders and other entrepreneurs. But also I binge a lot of podcasts. I don't know if you've heard of her, but Maya Nicole, she's been in terms of social media, a huge help for me. Do you know her? I just interviewed on her podcast a couple days ago. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Stop. I love her. (laughs) Yeah. So she, I've been following her since I started Boho and I've seen her grow too. 
Yep. But yeah, just if you don't have the budget or can't afford to dump into a full-time media manager or hire out different consultants, there is something from learning from other people who have free offerings like her. So I've learned a lot from her. I agree with you too. Like I think as a founder, Mm -hmm. you should at least have a go at marketing. You should try sales. You Mm -hmm. should try customer support. You should have an understanding of how each part of your business works because at some point you will be Mm -hmm. hiring people for those specific positions and you can better train people when you've done that job yourself. And then you just know as a founder what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, at the beginning, for sure. I mean, delegating is a huge part of being a founder, which as you know, it's been a struggle of mine, but I'm just starting to realize, okay, I can't keep doing the packaging and answering emails. But yeah, learning and then delegating when you can. But it is really interesting to see, to learn of my other entrepreneurial peers experience with starting their business and how much they hire out for how much they do themselves. But I think like, if you don't have the budget, a lot of times people are like, well, you need money to make money. You know, if you want to start a business, I've heard a lot of my friends say that like, you can do this because you had money and it's, I did not, I did not at all. I think I had $2,000 when I moved into my apartment and got an office that was free for six months at the time, I think because of COVID and just really took advantage of all the different networking, learning opportunities and didn't accept failure as an option. But that's just always been my personality to hustle and, and an eagerness to learn new things. So yeah, I would just, when you can try to keep an open mind and just go out there and figure it out and don't make excuses for yourself as to why you're failing or can't do something. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you. There are so many people who want to give you advice and they want to see you succeed. All you have to do is ask or even ask the right questions. And I think a Mm -hmm. lot of people are afraid of getting told no. So they don't even reach out to their network. They don't even Mm -hmm. ask for introductions, but being shameless and being okay with failure is such a big part of being a successful entrepreneur. So I like that you touched on that, how like you're constantly checking with your network, asking for support or asking for advice. I think that's really great. And as a new founder, that's what you should be doing, especially if you don't have the money to hire out a big agency or hire a full team, like you're gonna have to be scrappy and that's what's gonna help you succeed, especially in year one and year two. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That was really great advice. You touched on your office space. I know because I know Brad and you know, Brad, like I know how this office space came about, but for my listeners, can you explain how you got an office space and how you got the support that you currently have in your business? Yeah. So when I was in college, I had been involved with something called the Beehive, which is basically a group of students that kind of help small businesses in the local community. So at the time, they didn't have enough small businesses in their network for the showcase they do every year. They do a pitch competition. It's intended for students, but it could be anyone in the community. So I had brought my little startup idea, which was nothing at the time, to this pitch competition and did my little five-minute pitch. And that's how I met Brad and Kathy, who run the Gannon Beehive that's down the street. And they also work inside the Erie Technology Incubator. So they have office space for anybody in the community, kind of at discounted rates. But for students, they have an offering where you can get the first six months for free to start your business. And I had never heard of anyone at my school taking advantage of it. But once I heard about it, I was like, well, why not? You know, they have all these resources at hand, especially for students 
students. So I came into the technology incubator and had a little tiny, tiny office and quickly grew out of that within a month or so. So it's been great to be here and have their mentorship and also their connections within the community to help me learn more about myself as an entrepreneur, but also expose me to different ways I can go about building this into a long-term sustainable business. Yeah, I love that. And if Erie PA has something like this, Mm -hmm. your city probably has something like it too for people who are listening. Yeah, most cities that I've heard of have small business development centers or different organizations to help kickstart startups. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for touching on that. So I kind of want to go back to the early stages of your business. I love this question because all the answers are so different. How did you get your first 100 customers? Well, actually rewind a little bit more. So not from Boho, but from the account I did before. So my first 100 customers came from Poshmark actually. Actually. So when we were all like locked down during COVID, I am just such a busy bee. I didn't know what to do. So I purged my whole closet, took pictures of everything, listed them on Poshmark and sold everything. So that's how I got a taste of, oh, okay, I can make money off of reselling clothes. So I did my sister's closet, my mom's, aunts, uncles, everyone's ran out of clothes. That's how I got into thrifting and reselling there. So I actually got banned from Poshmark because I didn't ship something out within their given time. So I had to move to Instagram. So I, I made a little Instagram account to kind of pull all the people that were buying for me from Poshmark there and keep reselling. So that's how I started my Instagram and why I named it Boho Basement. Cause at the time, I think I had been working at Free People and my style was just very bohemian. So I called it Boho and then my grungy little basement that you're going to come shop from. And I just never changed it. So those are my very first sales which then turned into reselling vintage and then rework clothing. But when I actually started Boho full-time or committed to it full-time, my first 100 sales on rework clothing came from TikTok. Mm, Okay, interesting. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to talk about this because it's a little bit different than how other fashion brands make sales, but you do this really cool thing. Not only do you sell on your website, but you do this cool thing where you talk about how you're going live and then people bid on said clothing pieces. Right. So at the time when I started selling on Instagram, I would just take orders over DM or I wasn't to the point yet where I had made a website or paid someone to make a website. So I was just kind of, like you said, scrapping it together and selling, taking payment through Venmo. And one of my friends that was also selling started doing these things called live bids. And I wasn't really into it at first, but after I had had a bit of TikTok video go viral and I woke up on Instagram with 10,000 followers, I had thousands of DMs like, hey, can I buy these pants? Can I buy these pants? And I couldn't physically make enough to satisfy all the people that wanted one. So I was like, yeah, what the heck? Like, I'll do a live bid. I only have one pair and whoever bids the highest wins them. So I had gone live with Sam who started doing the live bids. And I think I sold those pants for like $800, which was insane. So I sold those for a crazy amount. And I went home and I called my parents and I was like, you will not believe this. You will not believe this. And so my dad was like, well, you better get back to your office and make as many pants as you can. So just because everything is custom made, it's so unique. And it also has that environmental sustainability 
sustainability aspect to it. So many people wanted their hands on them. And so I started making little collections every single week of five to 10 items that I would bid off. So after I was consistently getting three or $400 per pant, that's how I ended up deciding on the custom price. So I would have never guessed that I can get somebody to pay me $300 for a pair of pants that I made. But after the live bids, people kind of just associated that price with the pants. So then I opened a custom order, built a website, and I sold, I think, 230 pants. And that's when I hired Gloria. She used to be a full-time seamstress that worked for me, which couldn't have been better. The universe sent her at a great time. She was out of work, ironically, the same week I took this custom order. So I took her and I was like, hey, we need to make all of these pants. And she probably made more than 80% of them, which I don't know what I would have done if she wasn't here because I, I cannot make that many. So after that custom order is when I started pushing all of the sales to my website. But I still do live bids from now and then just to kind of maintain that relationship with my followers. And then also to test different products. Like if I have a new design, I'll throw it on a live bid and see if people like it. And if they like it enough, I'll take custom orders on that one piece. Wow. That's insane. I had no idea you sold a pair of sweatpants for $800. Yeah, I think one of my friends, the most that someone had ever sold a sweat set for was like $1,200. And I was like, oh my God, I was on that live too. But a famous person came on and bid that up. But I think the live bids really drove price and then just demand for what we were making. Now people just get it and it's easier for me to push a custom order on my website. Yeah, wow, you are killing it. Okay, so speaking of famous people, I want to touch on something that I think has been awesome for you. You have worked with some famous people in your business, and you've done these really massive collaborations. So tell me about <laughs> your favorite collaboration so far. What was it? How did it work? What were the results? My favorite, they're all my favorite, but they're all equally as stressful for me when I'm working with somebody who has a little bit of a following or is quote unquote famous, I get super nervous and I'm like, Oh my God, you know, paralyzed. What do I make? And I'll spend three days on that one order. But I think the coolest collab I did was with uh, Nismo, which is Nissan's motorsport. I'm not exactly familiar with the space, but it's under Nissan, which is the car brand. And so I created some looks and then styled some models out in Portland. And they shot a campaign that they showed at their Formula E race a couple months ago. So that was really cool. And then we bid off all of the items on their website and donated the money to a local charity in Portland. That is so freaking cool. How did that collaboration come about? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? Like, how did that go? How long was that process of firming up the collaboration? Like, give me more details. That was the most stressful collaboration because I had never done paid promoted collab like that. All of the work I had done, I guess, famous people in the past, they might just place a custom order and I fill it. But so they DM me, Hey, you know, we're interested in getting some pieces, hop on a call. So I had started communicating with them. I think 
three months before I ended up going out to Portland, but I actually didn't make the garments until a week before I flew out because there were so many people involved in this process that they hadn't gotten model measurements to me, like their vision board or anything. And I was like, Hey guys, you know, all this takes like a lot of time to make because it's all custom. And I also have to source all of the material for it. So I had to fly out that next morning. I was really nervous about having the garments in time. It was really cool. Like I said, I, I've never had another brand reach out to me and pay me and also take care of all of hotels and food and other expenses. That was the first time for me. So that was really cool. Would I do it again? Maybe. I think I would have to really sit down and break down how much time I'm actually spending communicating with them. Because although I know how much to price my actual garments and custom pieces, I've never broken down or considered the price of my time somewhere else or just every week communicating with them. So that was definitely something I had to figure out, but I'm glad I did that experience because now I know for next time. But other than that, I've styled, they call them the WAGs now, Wives and Girlfriends of the NFL. I Marissa saw that. Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, Marissa Lawrence, Taryn Simmons, Mindy Armstead. And I always joke with my brother too. I know the wives' names versus their actual husbands, <laughs> which is funny. But yeah, a lot of people who need a cute custom game day fit, they're going to post it on the gram. They're going to walk around in it and they want to kind of brag. Yeah, this was upcycled. Yeah, it's been really fun. But I would say most of them, I don't know if I've ever reached out to anyone, but most of them have just DM me or shot me an email. Okay, that is so cool. I'm going to need you to collaborate with Alex Earl and NFL man. That needs to be. Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> in the past too, though, like I actually I posted a video of what I would make Alex Earl that went a little bit viral. So sometimes from videos like that, they'll comment and then I'll get to send them something. Alison Kush is another one too. I made a video about her and she commented on it. So I got to send her something. So I guess in a way I kind of reach out to some of them, but I know I, that would be so cool if she and NFL man were rocking some merch. Alex Earl, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want to be respectful of your time because we're already over, but you've talked a lot about really massive wins and I am just so over the moon excited for you and all of the success you've seen in business so far. But on my podcast, we love to share our shortcomings. So can you talk about your biggest failure or your biggest challenge to date? My biggest failure to date, I think, would be accepting partnerships and relations with people in business that maybe don't have your best intention, which I think is inevitable too, because you don't really know. But I think if you are a bit more intentional and selective with who you get involved with, it will be better in the long run. You give yeah, us a story. Yeah, for, for sure. So at the time when Boho had first popped off and I had a little bit of a following, I had people left and right reaching out to me like, oh my God, this is so great and kind of wanting a piece of the pie. So so I had been in touch with a few guys that had different ideas for my brand. And long story short, they had ended up taking a lot of my time and also financial resources to build out their vision instead of something that I wanted. So I kind of let that classic white 45 year old business dude tell me what he thought was best versus trusting my intuition and going with what I knew my community wanted. So I think for about six to eight months or so, I'd spent a lot of money, a lot of time dumping my business into a vision of somebody else that I really had 
had no knowledge in the space that I was in or experience. So I quickly learned to be more selective with who I receive advice from, mentorship, and then also just partnerships. But also a big struggle of mine, which you know too, is my delegation. I think after that experience of losing so much of my time and money in my business, I kind of was hanging on for dear life. Like, oh gosh, I have to be in charge of everything. I have to do everything because I didn't want anybody else to mess it up. So kind of getting over that and you win some, you lose some, you have to move forward and you can't be afraid to fail like you mentioned before. Yeah, absolutely. And I get it though. Like once you've been burned, it's really hard to let go of your business again and trust and let people in. So I think a lot of people would agree and they would be right where you are in that circumstance. I haven't been burned in the same way you have exactly, but I've been burned by past employees, past contractors. And I know that when I went into the interview process again and started having conversations, I would have this thought of, well, what if this person also does the same thing? Like that thought was there and it took Mm -hmm. me quite a bit of time to get past that. But thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. I kind of want to go like a little bit deeper into this without taking too much more of your time. But like at what point in the relationship were you like, ooh, we are not seeing eye to eye and this is not a good fit? Was there a certain conversation? Was there an action? Like give us a little bit more detail into like what for you was a telltale sign that things were not working in this partnership? For me, and just to be a little bit more specific, this person or group had given me a lot of free services. Okay, we'll build your website. Okay, we'll help you develop marketing and SMS flow. Oh, I'll give you free mentorship. And everything was free, free, free. And it was hard to turn down at the time when I was just starting out. I was very receptive to it, really appreciative, but I ended up feeling really in debt to them with how much they had given me. So when the time came where they were like, okay, we're gonna build out this whole marketing plan and it's going to be X amount of dollars, which I think was like 30 to $40,000, which was a lot for me because I make everything. So if I'm not making sales and creating them and packing them and shipping them out, I'm not making money. I didn't have any passive income at the time. So in order for me to keep paying them what we had agreed upon, I was killing myself to meet these sales. And I was selling more than I had ever, but taking home less and working, not exaggeration, 70, 80 hour weeks, just going home exhausted, just bawling my eyes out, very confused. Like, why am I working so hard? But I don't see any results. And they were reaping all the benefits of my 13, 15 hour work days. So for me, it was burnout, just a point of exhaustion. And I just can't do this anymore. I can't possibly sell enough to make these payments to you. And also, why do I need a $30,000 marketing budget right now? I'm already seeing so much success on TikTok and having eyeballs on my page with what I'm doing. So I was almost kind of forced to just cut the relationship off and take a little two, three month hiatus before I got back into it. Oh my goodness. That's awful. But you're not the only female founder who has been down that path before with burnout. How did you bounce back? Was it simply just taking time off? Do you have any like burnout tips and tricks? Okay, I guess for a founder and an entrepreneur, you're always pushing your envelope trying to do more juggle more burnout is inevitable if you don't take time every day or at least once a week to reset and give your body rest because that rest is just as important as being productive. If you're not fully rested, you're just, you're not going to be at maximum productivity. 
So after that, I had actual hiatus gone away for three months. I went to Texas and Alberta and Florida three times, New York City, just traveled all around, kind of reset what I wanted for my business and also what I wanted for my personal day-to-day life. Spent a lot of time with family, got a dog. I think a lot of it for me too was I don't have much family around here where I'm living. I don't have many friends. So there was nothing for me to do or have a reason to go home every night at a normal time. So my sister was like, well, why don't you get a dog? Then you'll be forced to take a lap around the neighborhood. So getting a dog is not for everybody. You need so much time during the day to train it and everything. But for me, it allowed me to force myself to take a break in the day and go outside, get some sun, have a companion, all those things. Yeah. He's my ride or die. I love him. I love Frank so much. I don't know him in real life, but next time I come to Erie, I'm going to meet up with you and just like squeeze him and give him all the love. Yeah. He's my favorite. Yeah. He's so gushy. I love him so much. Yeah. But yeah, I think avoiding burnout at all costs, once you go through that, there really is no formula to get out of it. It just takes time, which I'm sure you know just as well too. Been there, done that. For me, burnout yeah. like depression. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've never experienced anxiety or depression in that way. But I think going down that path, it was the worst I had ever experienced in my life. And I don't ever want to feel that again. So if I have to go home early or take a long weekend to regroup and just ground myself, I will because I don't want to be in that position again where I'm crying every day, just panic attacks. I also never had panic attacks until I was really in the thick of it and didn't know how to manage the different stress of financial stress and then also social media stress and growing my business. But I am fortunate that I was able to make it out of that and still have my business because I think that point in business is a breaking point for a lot of people and they just kind of throw their hands up. So I'm grateful I was able to endure that and kind of get through it and know my breaking points for each of those things in business. Yeah, no, 100%. I think like what you said, that point you either quit and you go back to a nine to five or that is a real wake up call and you make changes in your business. So what you're doing is sustainable and you don't end up back in that kind of dark place again. So I appreciate you touching Mm -hmm. on that. Well, you gave so much value. I appreciate you taking the time to come on and share your wisdom with my audience. I want to give you a chance to like promote anything you have coming up, your website, how can people find you? Tell us all the things. So you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at boho underscore basement. I have drops every Thursday on my website or Instagram live. And yeah, come check it out. If anything, just learn about how to live a sustainable lifestyle and learn how to shop secondhand. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mia. It was a blast. And I think that is the pod. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Served Neat. I hope you enjoyed listening and found some tasty nuggets of marketing wisdom to help you take your brand to the next level. Remember, just like a perfectly crafted cocktail, marketing is all about finding the right balance and serving it up with a splash of creativity. So keep building, keep refining, and keep serving up your brand with style. And if you're thirsty for more insights, follow us on Instagram at Nate underscore the agency for even more marketing tips and tricks. Be sure to subscribe and join us for our next episode of Served Nate. Until then, cheers.